And we are working our way through Romans here. The tagline up there, grace to you and peace, is, is a verse in Romans 1. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was that sentiment Paul had for the church there. God's grace and peace to you and the gospel and Jesus Christ. And it's a review last week and a little plug. I said I was on the road and so I caught Greg's teaching on the website. You can do that. It's not that high tech, but if you're ever on the road, you can catch up and listen to it on your phone. So some of the things Greg covered last week in this last section had to do with judging others. First one there, don't be in a hurry to judge others. Because how did that section start? Because you do the very same things that you're judging other people for. And by judging, we only confirm God's standard and confirm that we need to be judged by it and heap coals on ourselves, don't we? The next one there, God will judge each according to their deeds. Their day is coming just like ours. God's going to judge other people. We don't need to worry about them. God's going to judge us. We should be a lot more worried about that. And then Greg concluded by talking about the story of Jesus with the woman that was brought to him, caught in prostitution or adultery, and a crowd bringing her likely naked, ashamed, holding rocks in their hand, ready to stone her to death according to the law. And what did Jesus tell them? You who are without sin, cast the first stone at her. And they went away sad, understanding their sins. So we have this standard that Jesus is setting. And time didn't allow Greg to go into the last few verses too deeply, but this was kind of the end of the section Greg covered last week. It says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And maybe that's a simple concept. God's going to judge all wrong. God's going to reward good, the Jew and the Greek alike. There is no partiality. God doesn't play favorites. God will judge us each on that same standard. And that's kind of how things ended is on that statement. And let's pray, and really the next section is going to dig in on that thought a little bit, that there's no partiality with God. But let's pray and just ask God to speak to us today. God, we do thank you for today. I thank you for this church family. It's good to be here. Um, after time on the road and some sickness, God, I just appreciate that you put us together, God, to understand your word together, to live it out, to worship you. We thank you for this family. We thank you for your word, God, that you spoke to us. You gave it to us to understand you, to understand how to live, to understand how to respond to you. God, we pray you'd help us understand your gospel, understand your love, understand your judgment, all those things that they work together this morning and help shape how we respond to you and how we share your gospel with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so this statement, for there is no partiality with God. Again, in one sense it's kind of an easy statement. But I was thinking about it, if I got a megaphone and went down the street in our neighborhood, there's that cool tin can ice cream restaurant down there, on a nice July day, like on a Friday, it's got a mile like all the way up to our building or something. Not quite, it's like, I think you can stand in that line for an hour and it's busy. And if I got there and and stood up on the sidewalk and had a megaphone and said, there's no partiality with God. He's going to judge us all the same based on his standards. And it's completely fair. And it's completely right. And if you don't respond to the gospel, you're going to hell. Do you think I get cheering as if I just scored a touchdown in a Bronco game? I don't suppose I would. Maybe. Maybe there'd be, maybe you'd be in line there and be like, yeah, it's good. But... I don't think I would be. Why is that? Well, there's some opposition to that. And I think if I 
like, if I started saying this, people might start yelling back at me, start yelling back things that they're thinking about this verse, thinking if really it's fair for the whole world to be judged on the gospel. I've talked to people about the gospel before, just gone door to door or on college campuses or with friends and shared the judgment of God and the good news of God. And some of these things on the screen there are things I've heard before. I might hear a lot of things if I said that. I might hear insults, that I'm small-minded or closed-minded or it's only one way or some worse things than that. But here are some things I was thinking about I might hear in that. What about those who have never heard of Jesus? Have you heard that question before? Have you thought about that question before? What about that next one? Don't the Americans who have churches everywhere, don't the Jews, don't they have a special advantage that some people in the world might not have? Or that third one, what about the 1040 window, which is... Boy, I'm not much of a geographer. Is that longitude? I want to say. I don't know. But that's kind of the whole stretch of Asia there that is very non-Christian. In that 1040 window, almost 5 billion people live in it, kind of that big swath across Asia, and almost two-thirds of them have not heard the gospel in a way that they could respond to it. So we look at those things and go, how could this be? It's not fair. God can't just go judge the world for their sin. There must be multiple ways to get to heaven. There has to be truth in those other religions, in that 1040 window, and whatever they're believing too. There has to be truth if they're Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist, because that's the chance they got. How can God hold them to the gospel? How can God hold them to the Ten Commandments if they haven't heard it, if they can't respond? How about this one? Maybe you've heard this. Don't our family or spiritual or cultural influences shape our opportunity to accept the gospel? Even within America, I think we have a church or six in every suburb in America. Maybe not. Maybe there's a little more in the Bible Belt than other places. But if we grow up in certain areas, if you grow up in the Bible Belt and they taught you the Bible at home and they taught you the Bible in the school and kept it there and you went to church... Don't you have a far better opportunity to respond to the gospel than someone that didn't? And someone that grew up in a home where they said, we're believing in something else, that's kind of not true. We're going to hold on to whatever, science or something else. And if that shaped our worldview, do we get a real opportunity to respond? And is it fair? And those are all good questions. It's all good things to ask and to think about and to think about how we defend our faith, how we think about the gospel, how we think about opportunities to respond. And I see that last verse last week, there is no partiality with God. That's a true statement from Scripture. But I recognize it's a very polarizing statement, isn't it? It's just like, boom! There's no partiality with God. You could like say it and and it's like a lightning rod to you to get opposition, I think. And Paul's going to go on and fill in some details on that. But I wanted to set that up because that really frames this next section here. Oh yeah, one more I had on there. Isn't God condemning people to live in certain countries? Thinking about like that 1040 window. Another one to think about with that. But here we're going to read the next section here in Romans, which is what we're covering today, if you read along with me on the screen. I started with that verse from last week. For God does not show favoritism, or there is no partiality. So it goes on, When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law does not make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in His sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own consciences and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. 
And this is the message that I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. Well, if we're asking how can God judge those who've never heard, and how can it be fair, and we're already a little perturbed by that sentence, that next verse here really stirs the pot even more. When it says, when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And when the Gentiles, maybe it's just talking about everyone that's not Jewish. But really we're talking about those in the 1040 window, those who've never heard, the tribesmen. When they sin, they will be destroyed even though they have never heard God's written law. And that's like a second polarizing thing. Boom! Now that's even... Now I could get more opposition talking about that, couldn't I? God, how are you being fair? They haven't heard. How can you destroy them? How do they know they have sin if they haven't heard the gospel, if they haven't heard the law, your standard? They haven't heard. And the next couple of verses address this topic a little bit and start to, to dig in and go, how does God address this? How do we look at the gospel in those terms? It says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law. I know we're repeating this, but just understanding it. How do they show that they know his law? Because they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and their thoughts accuse them or let them know that they're doing right. And so as we look at this again, a Gentile who does not have written law... Again, most of the world is a Gentile and strictly non-Jewish. But I think if we look at this and read it today and try to understand how does this apply, really, I think rather than separating out races in the context, we're talking about those who have heard and received and understand the Law of Moses, specifically the Ten Commandments as a standard that's to be obeyed and will judge us on how we act in God's sight. And that specific Ten Commandments that God made a point to hand to Moses on Mount Sinai, deliver to the people of Israel, record in the Torah, and pass on. But I think it's accurate to say anyone who has not received this, this is who we're talking about, anyone who does not know it. And again, what does it say? That they instinctively obey it and they show that it is written on their hearts even though they've never heard it. Now what did God give us apart from understanding this law to understand what's right and wrong? Or do we not understand at all? And I, I can think of some different things. God gave us parents. God gave us society. We have laws. We have things that are right and wrong and you'd be embarrassed about if you went and did. But I think more than all those things, God gave us each a conscience, didn't he? And conscience really just means with and knowledge, con, science, or conscience. And specifically, not just a knowledge of anything, a knowledge of gravity, a knowledge of math or psychology, specifically in this instance we're talking about the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of God's law and how we break it. A little less fun than knowing some of those other things. But it's interesting if you think about how do we get worldviews that don't accept this? Well, if you think about what's being taught in our schools or what I was taught in school as a boy was that the earth is 4.2 billion years old or something like that. We descended of monkeys. It's truly survival of the fittest and every animal has to, to fight its way out to try to survive, to try to not die off, to try to propagate itself. 
it can kind of sound kind of harsh, but then you have to think about if that's really our worldview and that's a predominant worldview out there, what does that mean if you take it to its natural conclusion? Shouldn't we be praising the strong and the, the richest and the fittest and the prettiest? And then I thought, wait, that's what social media is anyway. <laughs> so that doesn't hold my argument. But if this is really true, shouldn't we be looking for ways to survive and beat the competition? There's a limited number of resources on earth. If there's 10 billion people, can we all survive? I don't know. And then I have to think about all of you, really, your competition for me to survive and thrive and do well and make sure my kids can grow up. Shouldn't we be taught that it's okay to kill and steal and do whatever it takes? We were watching a Planet Earth last night, which is kind of a funny show to watch as a family because I feel like you can watch it, watch it, watch it, and like mute. The kids can't quite read all the words yet, so you can mute with subtitles and still hide some of the stuff they say about a different worldview. We were watching it, and they had one about the deserts of Africa, and it was talking about how giraffes can survive in the desert. And the male and a female are in the desert, and there's one in the middle of the desert, and you go, how does this thing live? Well, they wander around, and they finally find this oasis, somehow where there's water below the ground, and the tree roots can go real deep and find it, and there's a tree, and they can go and eat it. And so a male and a female got there, and they're just trying to live and survive in this place. Well, a second male strolled into this little oasis. It was not exactly like a happy reunion, and they went and got a beer in giraffe terms. I didn't know that giraffes could fight, but I learned that they can. They started out just kind of hip-checking, kind of like a little hockey thing, but then they started striking with their heads and like whipping their necks around. I've never seen that at the zoo, but it'd be, I'd be pretty amazed to see it. I think they'd break it up pretty quick, kind of like a schoolyard fight. Anyway, they're whipping with their heads around, trying to destroy each other, one keeps hitting the other one like on the back and it's breaking out with blood and the other one starts striking the legs to knock the other one over and eventually one knocks down and falls and it looks like it's over but the other one somehow like knocks the other one down until it knocks out and it's on the ground unconscious and it walks away and they're both not looking good at that point. And it explains the one that was able to walk away and wasn't unconscious would get to stay in that oasis and live and survive and get the girl. And the other one was going to go have to go back out into the harsh desert and probably would die in that condition and going out where there wasn't a lot of food and water. And if we take this worldview, it's prominent, maybe I'm on a tangent, but we should act the same. We should try to get rid of competition, shouldn't we? Ned, you make better coffee than me. I need to get rid of you. <laughs> right? Some of you are taller. Some of you are younger. I've got to get rid of you. We can't have you around. It's competition. We're all trying to survive. We're at odds. You're taking up jobs I want to get. You're buying the food at the store I want to get and making it more expensive because you're here. I should want all of you gone because I want to survive. Another thing... Humanitarian efforts don't really make any sense, do they? If you take this worldview that only the strongest survive and that's natural, why do we care about helping the poor and the sick and the hurting and the elderly? Why do we think that's a good thing? In nature, we see those those are too weak to survive. They just die off. What did Scrooge say? If the poor starve and freeze in the winter, it'll decrease the surplus population or something like that. Sounds really harsh, but that whole line of thinking is foolish. I don't think anyone on earth would really go, yeah, 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 and agree with all that. Maybe, I don't know. I could be surprised. But even those that deny God would go, no, humanitarian efforts are good. No, we should help each other out. We're not trying to kill each other. But why is that? If our most basic need is just to survive, and truly only the strongest has survived, and that's how we got here, 
And all that stuff should be true. That's how we should be thinking. But I don't know many people that think strictly that way. Why is it? Because God's put the knowledge of his law on our hearts that there's something bigger than that. There's something more important than just trying to survive. Just as the scripture says. And that's what that knowledge is. The knowledge of the law of God. In fact, scripture says, I don't know if I have the verse here. Oh, that's something else. But scripture says that they not only hear the law, but they show evidence of having heard the law in their life and their thinking. And there is evidence. We could go around the world, the places where they've heard the Ten Commandments or not, and ask people to drop a list, what's good and what's evil. I think you would hear patterns, like we probably shouldn't kill each other, it's mostly universal. There's a few people that might not agree with that. We shouldn't steal from each other. We should honor the elderly. We should provide for our kids. And you can go around and people would come up with that. Why is it? Well, it's because instinctively we have God's law on our hearts. It's written in every person's heart in the, in the whole world is what the Bible says. And Greg talked couple weeks ago about this verse that's another thing that just points us to God and understanding him Romans 120 says for since the world was created people have seen the earth and sky through everything God has made they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature so they have no excuse for not knowing God So God gives every human being his law on our hearts. And God says he also shows us his qualities and nature that we would understand that God is there. And that he created creation. Like I mentioned, my family was up in Estes Park last weekend. And one day Phoebe and I and my mom went into... Bear Lake Park. I got this professional photo before I have my cell phone one. Went to Bear Lake Park and it's beautiful. And the lake was totally frozen. There's mountains all the way around it and there's trees. And it's frozen so you can just walk across it which is a lot of fun. It's just kind of trippy. Being not in like Minnesota or something, it gets you a little worried in Colorado and it's getting towards spring but it holds up. But you look at it and you go, I don't know about you, but I get up there and it's just beautiful. You see the green of the trees, you see the white of the snow, you see the mountains, you see the blue sky, you see the sunshine. It's beautiful, it's breathtaking. But really, it's just a pile of rocks and trees and water. If really it was just... What helps us survive the most is beautiful to us. I think more than this, I'm sorry for you Midwesterners, we should think the most beautiful thing on earth is like a fertile field and it's growing corn and there's deer running through it that we could shoot and eat and there's a stream there where we could get water and I could live here all the days of my life and not get hungry. That doesn't excite me quite as much. I grew up in Colorado. I love the mountains and it looks beautiful to me. And people flock to this. And I was thinking about why on earth would people go scale Mount Everest? If really we're just trying to survive, why would I go to a place where there's no oxygen? Where if I'm out too many hours, I just my brain shuts down and my muscles shut down because I'm not getting enough air. And so I need a tank just to try to walk up the hill at the end. And if the sun goes down and I'm still out there, I'm going to die because it goes to like, I don't know what it is, negative 30 degrees or something. It just goes crazy cold, fast. Why are there people up there doing it every day and paying, I don't know how much it costs, a lot of money to get over there and to have guides? Is it because they lost all those brain cells with the oxygen? Probably, maybe. But it's also breathtaking. I think if any of us had the opportunity maybe to get airlifted, not that an airplane would fly up that high, but somehow we could, and God said, would you want to be transported up there and just look off Mount Everest for the day? I don't think any of us would turn that down. But why is it? It's the harshest place on earth. 
this should be ugly to us. Ooh, no one can survive there. But it's beautiful because it points to a God that can create something magnificent. And he's put it on our hearts to appreciate that. And so that if we could get isolated somewhere like Bear Lake in Colorado or at Mount Everest or even Iowa or Illinois or Nebraska in the Midwest and see those fields, we would think, oh, there must be a God that created this. It's beautiful. And I appreciate it. And we'd think, you know what? I know what's good and evil. I know it's bad to go kill someone to try to survive. God says those would happen, even if we were just dropped there for our whole lives. But the passage doesn't just stop and say that you would understand that law, so you'd have some knowledge, good for you. Maybe you'd understand that God is there. Does it? It says that somehow every person on earth would be accountable for that information that God has put on our heart. We'd be responsible for what we did with it, for how we understood it, how we responded. And it's not unfair for someone in China or India, as it is for America or Europe or Israel. And so it says, In this message I proclaim that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. And another thing, it says that they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. We reviewed that verse. The New American Standard is a little more literal in it. And it says their conscience is bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accuse them or defend them. I don't know what you hear when you hear words like bearing witness and accusing and defending. That language sounds a lot like a court trial to me, like having to defend yourself for something. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about, that there's a day that's coming when Jesus Christ will judge everyone's secret life. There is a coming day of judgment, and Jesus Christ will sit as the judge. And if we stand here and question, there's no standard he can judge me on. I think we're mistaken. And we're, we're taught that if someone has never heard the Ten Commandments, they will one day stand before Jesus too. And Jesus may ask them, I don't, I don't know exactly what that day will look like, but I understand this, Jesus will ask them, what standards did you understand were good and evil? And there's something that's on their heart that they will respond with. And I think he could ask them, did you keep that standard perfectly? And they're going to play back every moment of their life and he'll judge their secret life just like he's going to judge ours. In a preview of chapter 3 of Romans, it says that when we look at God's law, we've all sinned and fallen short, everyone on earth. And this passage says that God will judge our secret lives, the things we think that nobody saw, the things we think weren't a big deal, the things that happened a long time ago when we've kind of swept under the rug and moved on. And it's a terrifying day. And it won't just be like a million people standing there, the city of Denver, and God's going to go, how do you do, Denver? Was it good or bad? It's just going to be one of us at a time, reviewing our life, reviewing the things we did, the things we responded to. When I was a boy, I was over at a friend's house for the night. I think there was a few of us over there. And we waited until late at night, and we snuck over to this girl's house in the neighborhood. So we knew her family was out of town on a vacation. And there's a reason we went to her house, is we knew that she had a hot tub and a trampoline in the backyard. So we thought it was a good idea to sneak over there at 1 or 2 in the morning and go get in the hot tub and jump on the trampoline. And being, I don't remember the exact age, but I want to say we were like probably like 11 to 13 somewhere. Thinking of how to care for those things wasn't our first idea, so we'd like somehow taken the cover off the hot tub and thrown it aside and pulled things off the trampoline because we thought we were being funny and pulled pads off and different things and had a good time. And we snuck back to our friend's house and we didn't get caught. We thought we got away with it, so we went back to playing Nintendo, having a normal sleep overnight and doing whatever we did, eating candy. 
We got away with it. It was a fun time. Well, a few days later, this girl's parents and their family got back from vacation. And between the sprinklers and the animals and whatever else, parts of the trampoline and the hot tub had been ruined out in the lawn for a few days. And so her parents started calling around the neighborhood. There's not that many kids that are in her age bracket that probably would know her and gone over there. And so one day, I think I'm just sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast, and my mother asked me, were you over at her house? And did you have anything to do with all the stuff getting broken? And I had an answer, well, yes, but you don't understand. There was three or four of us, and we're over here, and really it was his idea, and I just went along with it. And this guy, he's the one that pulled it off. And I don't know if you've been in trouble with your mother, but saying there was other kids there doesn't go very far in the courtroom of your parents, does it? So what proceeded to happen was, quiet, I don't care about the other kids, you did it, and you're going to go fix it, and you're going to pay for it. And so over the summers, I would do lawn mowing and earn money that way, and somehow they worked out a dollar amount that I had to pay back as retribution and go over and try to repair things as I could. And I was grounded for a good bit of time and wasn't back at that friend's house for a while. But it didn't matter that those other boys were there too. I was in a lot of trouble for it, wasn't I? And when we stand before God on that day, it won't matter if all of Denver was doing the same thing. We can try to argue that, but God's going to say, I gave you a standard. What did you do with that information, Brad? And when God says he will judge our secrets, in this verse, it's not a sliding scale. It's not, at least I did better than the guy that's sitting in the jail downtown, or I knew somebody that did a little worse, or they stole more than I did, or they were meaner than I were, or they used worse language than I did. It's all of our secrets laid bare being judged by God's law. And again, another aspect of this is not just finger-wagging at those who don't know the Ten Commandments or know God's law. Verse 12 says, And the Jews who do not have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. Or the Jews who do have God's law. If we have the law of God, we will be judged by it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God, does it? It's acting on it. And we can say, okay, that only applies to the small percentage of the world that's Jewish, but God has given us the law. I'm going to basically guess that most of you in this room understand what the Ten Commandments are. And we're going to be judged under them, each of us. So not only do we have this knowledge of God looking in nature when we can go up to Rocky Mountain Park and we have a conscience, we have the written law of God that's been handed to us. It's not a sliding scale. I think of it for us, it's going to be a little like this. There's jaywalking, and jaywalking is illegal nationally. But you can jaywalk, and you can get caught, and you can argue, I didn't know, or I thought it was close enough. But then there's this guy. Like, if he got caught, and the police were there, he'd be like, I didn't know not to jaywalk. I almost hit the sign. I think this is what we're going to be like. God's going to be like, I gave you the Ten Commandments and wrote them on stone and wrote them down in a book that was recorded all over the world and you heard about. Yeah, but I didn't know if that sign was for me. It's kind of silly when you look at that, but I think we're doing the same thing, aren't we? And there's not much to argue. And I think to God, he's going to say, it doesn't matter what race or nationality we are. To God, to the Jew, to the evangelical Christian, to the Catholic, God's going to say, I gave you the Ten Commandments. Did you keep them? And who knows, maybe God has a third copy of those stones that had the Ten Commandments on them. One was destroyed, he went back up, he got another. Maybe God has a third there that we're going to see on that day. I don't know. But at least we're going to be judged by them, aren't we? 
so that's when God says to you who have the law you will be judged under that law and when he talks about the Jew and what they were trusting in the next chapter or section goes specifically in a bunch of things the Jews were trusting in we're going to put some of that off but as we read today sitting in church on a Sunday morning I think some of the things the Jews were trusting in to save them are some of the things many of us trust in in the same way God, didn't I sit in church all those Sundays and it was long? Didn't I tithe? Didn't I go to those midweek meeting things? And when we trust in those things, we're doing the same things. And that's the same sort of activities Paul will address in Romans 2. Even the self-righteous people that try to check all the boxes are still judged by the Ten Commandments. And will not go to heaven for those activities, will they? So sorry if you came today to check a box to do good deeds. It's not going to help any of us other than understand God's word. And so those questions I brought up at the start, we question God's fairness and partiality. And we can question, God, are you fair to the whole world? Don't we? Does everyone have the same chance? Did everyone hear? But in the end, it's really a non-sequitur for us, isn't it? The question's not, are they hearing or not, and do they understand the Ten Commandments somewhere in the 1040 window? The question is, Brad, do you understand the Ten Commandments? Do each of you understand the Ten Commandments? And we try to distract ourselves with this question. I think it's one of those, I've brought it up before, as I was seeking things out. I think a lot of people have, but really it's a non-sequitur to say, I don't want to deal with God's law Really, look at all these millions and billions of people that haven't heard it. I'm going to try to ignore it as if I hadn't heard it. We can't do that, can we? And just like at my mother's table after I broke the trampoline and hot tub, God will say, slow down. It's not about everyone. It's about you. We're not talking about the Chinese or the Indian or the tribesmen or the Russian or the European or the Americans today. We're talking about you today, Brad. Last week, verse 9 said, There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Without partiality, God will judge with that standard. Here's a few more verses to consider. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Proverbs eighteen seventeen, Keeping with that courtroom language. Why do I mention this? Unless someone is nuts, the first person to get up there, their story sounds kind of plausible and you'd believe them. But what happens? The cross-examination comes and there's other witnesses and there's more standards and we understand the law and how it applies to them and their testimony is judged by that. Just like ours will be. God will use the Ten Commandments in our conscience and all these things. Even if we seems right in our eyes, it won't be. Proverbs 30, verse 12, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. This describes the self-righteous. All of us can make our own judgment. Generally, we all view ourselves pretty highly. I'm doing an okay job. I'm going to church, and I'm checking the boxes. I pay taxes. I mow my lawn. I work hard. Tried to get good grades, whatever it is. But until we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not yet cleansed from our filthiness and we will be found guilty on that day. All of the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 16.2 The Lord will weigh all of the motives on our scale. Nope. His scale. I think of this verse and I think of Monty Python to take you back, but they're trying to decide if a woman is a witch by weighing her against a duck on a scale, and it comes out that she weighs the same because her scale is completely broken. I think that's kind of what my scale is like. I'm pretty good, see? I jumped on it, and I weigh the same as a duck. Well, God's scale is going to work a little better, and he's going to weigh the motives of our heart versus the Ten Commandments and versus our conscience. And God establishes that we will be judged no matter what race or religion we are, no matter if we attend a church or not. 
But I think that can leave us with a question. Does God care that the whole world has been found guilty then? How can God do this? Does God care? On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. So to end this passage, Paul ties this back to the gospel, doesn't he? According to my gospel. And there's one piece of the gospel that's highlighted in these five or six verses here. The judgment of God versus God's standard. That we're all guilty before a holy God. And on that day, when we're judged, if we have sin, verse the Ten Commandments, we will all go to hell for our sins. But that's not the totality of the gospel, is it? The gospel goes on to say that God demonstrated his love for us to give us a way out of that. John three seventeen and 18. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world because we didn't need him to, right? We were already judged and guilty by the Ten Commandments in our conscience. But why did he come? That the world might be saved through him. That he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here's a preview of Romans 5. But again, it's all just one big letter written. So sometimes it's hard to break it apart and just look at a few verses. But in Romans 5 it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were destined to go to hell on that day of judgment, Christ died for us. And Jesus Christ is coming to earth, came to earth, and he died for us in our depravity and sin and guilt and that was the display of the love of God how God demonstrates his love toward us in the beginning we were questioning doesn't God condemn certain countries or families or people based on where they are or what they believe or what they heard in their home they have less of a chance of understanding and when you think about it with that presupposition what we're saying is man's pretty good He's trying his best, and he deserves to go to heaven. And it starts from a place of questioning, God, you're not fair that you're sending them to hell. They deserve to go to heaven. And we can judge the world by our own standards. That's the duck scale again. Colossians 2. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Finish. The gospel says that we were all dead and our transgressions and sins, like we've been talking about. The whole world was headed to hell. And God would have been completely justified to blow up the world with a fireball, send the whole world to hell. We all broke his standard. He did it once with the flood when we turned away from him, and he judged the world because people had gotten so hideous in their sins. Why hasn't he done it again? he said, I will not judge the world again with a flood and gave a promise. Maybe that's the only reason why he hasn't. But instead of just destroying the world again, what did he do? He came to the earth to show mercy. And how did the world respond to that? They rejected him. They mocked him. They crucified him. And they killed him. They didn't accept his teaching or his gift. And yet he died and conquered death and sent a small band of his followers after he raised from the dead out into the world to give this message of salvation. The very message of the gospel to a condemned world headed to hell. And they could receive that gift of eternal life. By believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they could be pardoned on that day of judgment. They could be clean. And they could hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
instead of hearing their life or eternal judgment on that day from God the judge. And so when we say, God, don't you care about the Indian or the Chinese? What we're really saying is, man is generally good and God's a meanie who's sending people to hell who should be going to heaven. God's unfair. But when I think we understand in heaven what Christ paid for that, we're going to say, God, you cared so much. You demonstrated your love. We didn't deserve you coming to earth. I was praying about it this week, thinking really our sin is like a terminal sin affecting us. I was thinking about this epidemic. Does anyone know what these are? These are called iron lungs. This is from the 50s when polio outbreaks were happening. And when polio happened, it's a horrible disease where you would just start to get paralyzed until less and less moved. And eventually you would become paralyzed to the point where your lungs would paralyze and you'd stop breathing. And people were just dying in droves. These iron lungs existed because it was like this breathing machine that would do all this pressurization stuff to try to keep you breathing if that was going on. But it was spiking in that point where people were getting it in droves in the U.S. alone. I think there was like over 3,000 deaths a year going on in the 50s. And they were scrambling, figuring out, how do we cure this? It's just spreading everywhere. And this doctor came along that found a cure for it, Jonas Salk. And it took him some time to figure it out, and there was some trial and error, and he was trying... Him and his team were trying to cure that actually paralyzed people more and it took them a while to refine it so they could get a vaccine out that would actually get to people and solve it. But they, by the mid-50s, they'd figure out, I think we've got it down, and they started to produce it. They started to get it out to people. They started to have go to the schools and give it to kids and get people vaccinated. And by the mid-60s, the disease was largely under control in the U.S. that was just way down how many people were getting it because they got vaccines out for it. And by the late 80s, I think it was when he died, there was still like 350,000 cases worldwide. There was places it was still going. There was countries that couldn't get their hands on it due to education or their finances or the, just other factors going on like that, that there was places that weren't getting it. And I was thinking about it going, would, I, would anyone ever question this man? He's passed on now in his 80s, but whatever, in the 80s, but whatever anyone question him and think, well, you gave it to the Americans in California where you live first. Did you not care about people across the ocean? I don't think so. He was awarded with all kinds of awards. He got presidential, a presidential medal of freedom. He was honored at the White House and with the president. Even though at the time of his death, people were still dying from this disease all over the world. Eventually, people took up the cause and, and invested a lot of money and got it out, so it was really more and more eradicated, kind of the ends of the, the earth type thing. But he was a hero, and he spent his life researching something that helped the world. Yet when Jesus Christ saw a world dying of their sins, and in Colossians 2, he described it as a world dead in its transgressions and sins, destined to go to hell, Dr. Salk did a good work and he invested his career to research how to cure it. Jesus Christ came and paid the ultimate price of his life for the cure, to give a vaccine to our incurable disease of sin. And when we say, you don't care about the world, and there's countries you're just sending to hell, God, you don't care. We're spitting on what Christ paid for. God cares infinitely about the world. And God's rolling out the greatest redemption plan and the greatest redemption story could have ever been created. I have to mention John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. God so loved the world. He loves all six billion people in the world immensely. And God cares for you. He cares for me. And he offers this vaccine for our sin problem. And so before we get up in arms and think, can someone in India have a chance to accept the gospel? God, you're a meanie. Understand that God has brought the gospel to your door and my door today. And we will be held accountable for how we responded to it. How we responded to the gift that Jesus paid his life to bring to us. Jew or Gentile, churchgoer or not, tither or not, we will be held responsible for that. It will will come down to how we respond to this. Romans 10, verse 9. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. It's like getting that vaccine. And there's a nurse standing by and we understand how God has solved the sin problem. And if we reject it, it's like saying, yeah, we have that vaccine for polio here, but someone in a deep jungle can't get it. Well, you're foolish not to go get that vaccine if you're thinking to them, it's available here and you need to consider that. It's the same with our sin. It's kind of a non-sequitur to think, what about those people who can't hear or don't understand? The bigger question is, do we understand? And it's as simple as just saying, God, I understand that I will be judged unfavorably on that day, the day of your judgment, when looking at the Ten Commandments and my conscience, I thank you that you paid the ultimate price for my sins. That I could go to heaven that day and not be judged and go to hell for eternity. I want to accept that cure and that gift today. And that's all that's between you and a favorable outcome on that day. And I want you to just, if you've never prayed that, do it today. Consider that. It's the most important decision of your life, like getting that vaccine when the disease is spreading and rampant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your gospel. God, we thank you that you paid the ultimate price to bring it to us. God, that you loved us so much that you gave up your very life to bring redemption. God, help us have a true understanding that you love the world immensely. God, that you didn't come to condemn the world, but to bring life. God, that you brought a message of hope, a message of salvation. God, we deserve death when we look against your judgment. Help us each receive that gift you've offered. And God, help us hold in esteem your standard and your gift in our hearts and as we defend your gospel and as we speak of it. God, help us have a true understanding of your gospel today. And help us honor you with our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.